What's up, guys? Welcome to the Walk Show podcast, where we explore the walk of life. This is your host, Walker Near. The music for today's show is provided by Misha Zarin, so many thanks to Misha. I strongly encourage people to check out their local food bank to see how they can help, as food banks like the Ozarks Food Harvest here in my town are helping families overcome food insecurity, which is a problem we need to solve. You can follow me on social media like Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at The Walk Show or The Walk Show Pod. All those links are in the show notes for you. This week, we are joined by Jen Donahue, who has completed large-scale geotechnical projects as a PhD civil engineer, consulted operations on projects ranging from 6 to $64 million, and lectured at UC Berkeley and UCLA, and is a military veteran. Jen joins us today to share her thoughts and insights into leadership. Jen is obviously a remarkable person, and I'm very humbled to have her as a guest on the show today. So let's get over to our conversation. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Jen Donahue, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so before we jump into it, I do have to give a shout out to the lady that connected us, Carolyn Owens. Uh, she, You've been a guest on her podcast, yes. uh, and she's a, a terrific lady, and she connected us, and so I always try and give her some some props whenever I can. So um, either way, so Jen, you, uh, I will admit, if if someone goes and Googles you, there's a lot of different things that you're involved and engaged with, and you've got all sorts of crazy titles, the earthquake doctor, all sorts of stuff. Um, but I did find your website, just jendonahue.com, um, where primarily it looks like you're focusing on on kind of coaching and, and helping with with leadership. Is that is that accurate? Yes, it is. It's something that I'm just so passionate about is helping, especially young entrepreneurs and young scientists and engineers and financial people learn their way in trying to be a better leader. Hmm. And you're uniquely equipped for that because you have a background of leadership in the Navy where you led huge teams of people. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So currently I lead about 1800 people. Wow. Okay. So, so everything from four people to about 1800 people is what I've had the opportunity to lead so far. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess that kind of covers it all then. <laughs> uh, that's a spectrum. All right. Um, well, I think that's really interesting. You know, I, I did a, a solo episode that I'm probably glad you didn't listen to uh, on my thoughts on leadership a long time ago now for the walk show. But it's it's definitely a topic that that interests me, because it seems like there's um, a variety of ways that effective leadership can be conducted, demonstrated, I don't know. Can you help me understand, like, in your expertise, what is the kind of the different labels, if you will, or styles of leadership that may exist? Wow, there's a huge range. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really depends. And I think that there's all different types of leaders and really anybody can be a leader. You know, a lot of times when we think about leaders, you know, we think about those big, bold leaders who are going to charge and take that next hill. Well, that's one kind of leader. And there are times and places where you need that type of leader. But then on the other side, there are other leaders that are, are selfless leaders. They're compassionate leaders. They might be introverts. I'm an introvert. I'll, I'll absolutely admit it. But there's others who have a different softer style of leadership. And a lot of times that's what people are really looking for. Um, mm. I just did a whole bunch of research over the last year and a half. And I went out to people and I asked them, who is the leader that you would most want to emulate? And I let them think about that for a couple of minutes. And then I say, what are the three traits that embody that leader? And Everybody's thinking is probably that fearless, bold, you know, take charge type of person. But that's not actually what I'm finding. I'm finding mm -hmm. that people are looking for compassionate, inspirational, leads by example. Those are the items that keep coming up over and over and over again. So there's this wide spectrum. So you can be that big, bold, take charge, go take the next hill type of leader. But you can also be this, you know, the, the softer, the more enthusiastic, compassionate type of leader as well. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, does it, does it, is that, is, does that also to some extent tailored to the, the industry or the, the business that you're in? I mean, I guess, you know, in, in the military, maybe the more rigid leadership is more appropriate than it would be in some other spaces. Is that accurate? I think it used to be that way. Mm. So when I was a junior officer, and I was put in charge of leading a team for the very first time. There was 13 of them, of them, and I thought, 
I have never led anybody before. Like, what do I do? And so I looked at some of the senior officers that were in charge of me and they were the yellers, right? And so were the ones that it's like, if you did something wrong, they were yelling at you and telling you this is wrong and degrading you and making you feel horrible and realize, oh, I've got to do better. And those were the type of leaders. And so I thought, oh, well, that's, that's how you're supposed to lead people. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm a leader and that's what I'm going to do. And so I had this one project and my team didn't do as well as what I would hope. So I turned right around and I yelled at them and, and degraded them and told them they had to do better. And really in like the pit of my stomach, it just felt wrong. Mm. I mean, it felt so wrong. It's like, this is not who I am. This is, this is not the kind of leader that I want to be. And I mean, really it's like been like almost 22 years since this happened. And I still feel really awful about it, you know, cause I think I hurt people's feelings, you know, but, but that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And I've gone back and talked to some of the, the more senior people that I've known in the military. And they all kind of came up with that, this idea also that that's what they were supposed to be. And it was only until they were later when they realized that's not who they are. That's not how they wanted to lead. And so almost like late in their career, they realized that's not who I have to be. And they started being that more compassionate leader, that more leads by example, that, you know, that trusting type of leader. And that was like way later in their career when they realized this. And mm. what I'd like to help people understand is like, even in the military, you can be that compassionate, selfless leader and you're going to get noticed for it and people are going to want to follow you. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this might not be a very good comparison or analogy to try and draw, but, you know, I recently got a dog um, and I one day I was out on the leash with him and he was tugging on the leash and being all crazy acting. And, and I I didn't know what to do to get him to stop. Right. So I got I mean, I didn't get like angry and flip out, but I got frustrated <laughs> and, and raised my voice and and just kind of grabbed him to hold him still and be like, stop, you know, and that didn't work at all. It just made him afraid. And and it just dawned on me. And, that, and again, I, I realize it's a dog, not a person. And, it's you know, there are differences, but um. It just dawned on me that like all that I've really done by acting out on my own frustration is now made him deal with my frustration, but we still haven't really solved the real <laughs> problem, right? Yeah. Now we just have a new problem. True. And so it just seems like the style of leadership that's the more hard charging or, you know, whatever aggressive <laughs> dominant style it seems like it just creates that problem over and over. And again, not that people and dogs are identical or that <laughs> me training my dog is identical to the leadership <laughs> expertise you have. I don't mean to draw it right. that way, but does that make sense at all? It totally does. I mean, those type of leaders bred other leaders. And yeah. so it's just been passed down from generation to generation, especially in the military, that this is how you're supposed to lead. And mm -hmm. I think there's been enough of us that have come up to say, that's not how we have to lead. We can lead just as effectively by being ourselves and trying to be, for instance, selfless leaders. We can be just as effective. And the same thing goes out in industry as well. I worked several years for, for a really great company, and I saw all different types of leadership styles on the business side as well. And you could see where... There were some of that old school, like, you know, very tough love type of leaders. And then there was the others. And those are the people that people wanted to follow. They're the ones that wanted to stay with the company. They wanted to follow those people. So I think it bridges, you know, not just the military, but it bridges all different sectors. Right. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's so interesting. I think for me, at least when I think of leadership, obviously I'm thinking about other people, right? Like, even if I'm thinking of me as a leader, like, oh, well, that's because I'm leading someone else. And so there's a, a, a tendency, again, I'll just talk about for myself, to to want to consider the other people's motivations and the other people, what are they doing and how can they be you know, more effective or whatever. Right. But in the end, we can't control any of that. We can only control ourselves. So it, it seems like there's just a lot of, it just seems like over and over in almost any walk of life <laughs> that we come to, it's all just constantly looking in the mirror and figuring out how we can improve ourselves and change ourselves to create different outcomes. Is that, is that what you found as well? It, it is. Uh, I believe that leadership is one of those things that you have to continually work on. Just like if you're playing the piano, I used mm -hmm. to play the piano as a kid. If I tried to play the piano now, I would fail miserably because I, I might be able to play chopsticks and that might be it. Maybe not right. even that, but it's something that you have to continually work on. And you'll find that 
the longer that you're doing this, whenever I was in my thirties, I was a very different kind of leader. I had, I espoused different ideas than whenever I've been in my forties. Like I know that that has changed and I've evolved and I've matured. And now I have a new leadership style. It's different from whenever I was in my thirties and especially in my twenties, but it's something that continues to evolve. And it's something that we continually have to work on. And, and to your point, when we're working with other people, I think you have to be comfortable with a spectrum of your leadership. Mm. There's going to be people that you have to look straight in the eye and say, you need to do this right now, right this moment, do it now. And you know what? That's what gets to them. Like, got it. I'm going to go do it. But if I do that same thing to somebody else, they might go cry in the bathroom, you mm. know? So you have to realize that you have to read people as well. And you have to be comfortable on that spectrum. You have to be able to look at that person and be very gruff, but then you have to still feel comfortable enough for someone who might be a little bit, you know, not attuned to that type of attitude. And you have to be able to talk to them and still get through to them to still motivate them to, to do what they need to do. Right. So I guess another kind of question I have is how much do you think that leadership is tied to, um, the hierarchy of an institution. And I guess what I mean is just are leaders primarily the people who are in official positions of leadership or the leaders emerge from within the ranks to, <laughs> I guess. I would like to think anybody can be a great leader. Maybe mm. you're just in charge of one other person on a team. You know, we all have those types of projects where we have maybe somebody underneath us or maybe somebody that's parallel to us, but we're in charge and we have to lead them. So you have to start at the very bottom. You have to start with the most junior people and help them with their leadership skills because that's going to what, what's going to take them to the highest levels. Yes, as the president of the company, I would absolutely expect you to be a good leader. And there's a lot of companies out there that don't have good leaders because that person did not invest the time into being a leader. Right. So you can be the president of a company and be a terrible leader. Right. And also be the president of the company, be a fantastic leader because that's what you've really looked at. Right. Yeah. I don't know where I read it and it was some time ago, but I, I read one time that leadership is, is, um, can be measured like a person's capacity for leadership can be measured by how much influence they're able to exert over a situation mm. kind of regardless of their official position. So maybe they're not the, the quote unquote, the boss, but if their ideas are the ones that are going through, then arguably they're expressing leadership in that. Does that resonate or does that make sense? Absolutely. It, it really does. You know, like I said, you might be on a project where maybe it's just you and one other person, but you have the responsibility or the authority to get whatever it is done. So you have to exert some type of leadership over maybe somebody who's your peer, or maybe you have to do some type of leadership to somebody who's above you as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of flat organizations, they have this type of issue that they have to deal with, but anybody can be a leader. You know, right. it, maybe it's just, maybe it's just yourself. It doesn't have to be over a, de a department. You don't have to be a department head. You don't have to be all of that. You can be a leader just as you are. Mm. So, I mean, I, I guess, and maybe we've already, maybe it was the very first thing we touched on, but I mean, what do you think is, is probably one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about leadership when it comes to, to just generally the idea of it? I think the, the biggest misconception, at least what I've seen in the industries that I've been a part of, is that leadership starts around middle management. Mm. A lot of times they think that, you know, the more junior people, the more junior scientists, engineers, financial people, they want to make sure that they're technically ready to go. So they spend a lot of time on their technical acumen and make sure that they are technically the most perfect person before they start to bring them up the ladder. Okay, well, they're starting to go up the ladder before you even get to middle management. So you, I think most people get it wrong that you start leadership at that middle management place. Start it early, work mm. on the technical acumen, but also start working on the leadership then, because if you can start to establish some kind of baseline for leadership there, just think of how much better they're going to be at middle management. They're going to have all these years of experience behind them. And then as they go up to be a department head, as they go up to be, you know, up the corporate ladder, they're going to have all of this to build on in addition to the technical aspects of all of that. Yeah. You know, this is a somewhat cliche or a common thing. Um, but there's a lot of, of discussion I've seen about like the, and I don't know what the stat is, but there's some high frequency of CEOs that are dyslexic. 
And mm. the correlation there is that as a kid, if you're dyslexic in school, unless you have, you know, access to additional resources, it's really, really challenging, right? Like unless you have a tutor or someone that can right. help you through it, it's really challenging. And so oftentimes what the kids end up doing, at least the ones that become CEOs, not every dyslexic kid is a CEO, obviously, but um, is they end up recruiting their their peers to assist them, whether it be to, to do their work for them or to help them with their work or whatever. And so from this very early age, they're cultivating this skill set of getting other people to help them with their project, right. which is kind of a very simplified way of explaining <laughs> what a CEO might be trying to do. Right. Uh, but I guess my I guess my my thought is that, you know, with the example you were kind of describing there where it's like, okay, we want someone to to be technically sound or you know, have a really strong industry knowledge before we move into leadership. And then the leadership will be kind of a, a complement to all that they know about whatever industry or business they're in. When in fact is it more that to be a really effective leader, like the leadership is the people skills is maybe the more important thing. And then the technical acumen is almost a support of that. Does, does that make sense? I guess like the, the people skill is more important. I, in some regions. Yes. I would absolutely mm. agree with what you just said. In in some areas, maybe in a very engineering type of heavy area, you have to have a little bit of that engineering background because you're the lowest person on the ladder and you're supposed to be, you know, pumping out the work, you know, for, for the rest of the company. And so, but, you know, so I think that there's that piece to it, but I think that you absolutely have to put some type of leadership training pipeline for those very junior people. Mm. You know, it might not, you know, be the front seat, but it needs to at least be the side seat. Uh, right. Don't put it in the back seat. Definitely don't put it in the trunk. You know, if you yeah. put it in the trunk, nobody's ever going to find it because it's going to be rolling around with everything else that's in the trunk. Right. Yeah. So a word that I um, that I get hung up on a lot is the word consequences because people always use it to just imply a negative thing when I think it can imply any range of outcomes, right? right. <laughs> and another word that I think also gets misused in that like exclusively negative context is accountability. Um, and I think that accountability is probably a pretty important part of, of leadership. Can you maybe talk about what you think accountability means and, and does it mean punishment? You know what I mean? Is it always oh, a no. negative thing? Oh, no, actually, I think of accountability as a very positive thing. When we talk about accountability in the military, really what that means is that you own the project or you own the battle space or whatever that might be. And you are accountable for that. That's a very hefty thing to be in charge of. And it's an honor to be accountable for something. So I always look at accountability as, as a positive thing. Yes, if something goes wrong within that battle space, you're accountable for that. And you are responsible to take actions for that. So I think of accountability as something that's very positive. Yeah, well, I guess I guess maybe what I what I mean is, and I agree with you. I think it's a good thing as well. But I guess like when when it comes to holding people accountable, so maybe yeah. not holding yourself okay. accountable, but as a leader holding someone accountable, what does that look like? That's something that's, that's to me that's very different. So holding somebody accountable, if you are going to give the trust to somebody, if you're going to give them the authority and the responsibility to take care of a project and some way that they fail, you do have to hold them accountable. Now, at the same time, I would say, turn the mirror around and look at yourself mm -hmm. and realize, did I give them the resources that they needed? Did I give them the time that they needed? Did I, did I give them everything that they needed in order to execute this project or, or whatever it might be? But holding that person accountable, I think is something that's very necessary because they understand that, yes, this is my battle space and I have to take care of it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I remember when I, I used to work in a, a, a some corporate setting and there was a, a team of people that weren't doing what they needed to do. And I suggested to the manager that he deliver corrective action to them, right? Mm -hmm. Write them up um, to, to, to hold them accountable. And he just, he explained which it was funny because he had a reputation for being a hard ass, pardon my French, but, um, and, and, and so I was really surprised that he came with that, but his point was that 
you shouldn't you don't always have to lead with the cudgel kind of thing that that sometimes you can hold people accountable just by basically letting them know that you're paying attention and i just thought that was a really interesting idea and one that at, at that time was certainly new to me um so i guess i ultimately was just taking a really long way around asking if that made sense to you or not or if that if that resonated in any way <laughs> um with the idea of that, that accountability can also be just hey we're, we're all tracking this right and so it's visible it's not hidden I think that's actually part of holding them accountable. They know that mm -hmm. they're being held to a certain standard. I mean, if you completely blow them off and don't say anything whatsoever, then yes, you are not holding them accountable. But if it, yeah, just even that small little piece of checking in and making sure that they understand, that's, that's definitely a way to hold somebody accountable. So I'm going out of order here because I've we've already been talking about all this, but, <laughs> but so you, you I am curious, you know, you, so you had this career in the military and then you exit that and you work in, in the private sector a bit and then you eventually find yourself doing the, the work that you're doing now. Can you kind of walk us through just a high level what that journey looked like? Absolutely. It started when I was 11 years old. Like, I'm not going to tell you like every year from there, but <laughs> we don't have that much time. No. <laughs> But it started when I was 11 years old. And so as an 11 year old girl, you know, growing up, you know, in the early 80s, you were supposed to be playing with Barbie, right? That's just yeah. what it was. And I saved up all of my allowance and I went out and I bought the Barbie dream home. And this mm. was so exciting for me because I took it apart. I reconfigured it. I put it together. Like I just basically reconstructed this thing like over and over and over and over again. You know, I wasn't playing with Barbie. I mean, poor Barbie. She was displaced. You know, she never actually got to live in the home. Like my whole thing was like building the dream house. And it started to dawn on me that I love to build things and got really into math and science and continued to build. And I uh, went to Texas A&M. I was an ocean engineer. And through my last couple of years that I was there, I realized that I didn't want to go down to Houston and just get a, a job working for the oil and gas I needed to get out and I needed to see the world. And I had this angst that it's like, I've got to get out and I've got to go, got to go see things. And so I looked at the different uniform services and found that the Navy was the best fit for me. Mm. I joined their civil engineer corps. Um, so they're also called the CBs and got to go all over the world. My very first duty station was in Guam, you know, which is like way out in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, there's nothing for miles and miles and miles and got to travel I've been doing all types of work for them. I've been blink, excuse me, uh, drilling and blasting roads in Alaska. I've done schools. I've done roads. I mean, just all kinds of really great work. Um, I met this super handsome guy while I was in Guam, and uh, we got married. He got out of the Navy and moved to San Francisco with the FBI. So with the FBI, they don't transfer anywhere. So I knew that for the next 20 years, if I wanted to actually be married to him, I would have to get off of active duty and move to San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco, started working in the civilian industry, uh, built runways down in San Jose, went back to school and decided to get my master's and PhD in geotechnical earthquake engineering, which is how I became known as the earthquake doc. Yeah. Um, during this entire time, I stayed in the Navy Reserves. I've been deployed to Iraq. I've been deployed to Afghanistan. And three years ago, I decided to start my own company. And so I'm proud to say that I am the owner of JL Donahue Engineering. And we do very specific uh, seismic design. That's oh, my wow. story. 
Cool. Well, I, yeah, okay. I didn't understand that you were still doing an engineering business alongside the like the coaching and the leadership stuff that you're working yes. on as well. That's pretty cool, huh? Well, yeah, you're. It's incredible the amount of things that you've accomplished. Frankly, um. <laughs> my husband jokes that I can't hold down a job for more than five years because I keep changing. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so in the in the the leadership space that you're working with now who who are you primarily working with you're working with individuals or businesses or who are your your clients primarily there Really I've been working with everybody I mm. really love working with young entrepreneurs I love working with like young scientists engineers you know people in the financial industry nurses those young folks cuz they are so hungry for like any type of leadership and mentorship and I just feel like this is sort of my calling because whenever I was their age, man, I had a drill instructor who was yelling in my face and spitting on me and I was having to do push-ups and things like that. He started on that very first day talking about leadership. You are going to lead people. This is how you do it. And started to instill those things from the very beginning. And I feel like, you know, there's this whole generation that hasn't had that opportunity and I want to give it to them so that they are not just, you know, great technically, they are leadership experts and they are going to do really great things for their corporation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, the word you use there, mentorship, I think is, is something else that's, that's really important. And I think often overlooked um, and maybe overlooked isn't the right word, but it's, it's not the forefront of a lot of conversations about personal development. And um, you know, I had a guy on, on my podcast a, a few months ago who works at a, a company that does wilderness therapy for adolescents and young adults. So oh, wow. take kids out in the, the woods in Idaho and have them out there for eight weeks. And they do counseling sessions and stuff with them. But primarily they're taking them out of the environment that they're in and, and presenting them with uncomfortable things and then kind of helping them work through that. Um, and so I asked him, I said, so do you think that the, the, the way for, for a person to, to, to grow or to, you know, again, develop whatever word we want to use is, is to experience discomfort, to get themselves outside of their comfort zone. And he said, you know, yeah, that's obviously a part of it. But he said, you know, I think any time in my own life, when I think back on it, that I've accomplished something, there's also a mentor, right? There's also mm -hmm. someone else there to kind of walk me through that, which obviously, you know, his company is providing in that therapy situation. But I guess just, you know, you just kind of spoke to how you're working with these young entrepreneurs, but, and, and the drill sergeant, but yeah. Can you elaborate a bit more on, on your thoughts on mentorship and the value of that? Absolutely. I was a wild young engineer. Like when I was at <laughs> Texas A&M, I was like running all over the place and I was like, I'm going to do it myself. Nobody can stop me. I'm going to take on the world. Nobody can tell me what to do. And right. that's the way that I was for many, many years. <laughs> and uh, now I'm starting to realize, wow, well, if I would have had a mentor, I probably wouldn't have screwed up as much as I did. Um, <laughs> You know, especially in the military, I really could have used a mentor from time to time. Mm. Uh, but I've, over the last several years, uh, people started coming up to me and asking if I would mentor them. And I was like, oh, I never really had a mentor. I, I don't even know what that's all about. And so I went and I researched, like, how do I be a good mentor? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to just see if I can go find a mentor. Mm. So you're never too old to have a mentor. And right. so I got a mentor and then it made the to hold a difference in the world. Like I am as successful today is because I had that mentor and mm. he helped me along the road to where I am now. And I, I tell people now, it's like, man, don't be, it's absolutely okay to have that. Like I'm going to take on the world, but yeah, it might be nice to just sort of bounce some ideas off of somebody from time to time uh, so that you don't take all the pitfalls that they probably also did, but still have that fire, still have that drive. But, you know, find that other mentor because they can help you and they can help put you with other people that can help you as well along your journey. So I would absolutely say get a mentor. And if you can, get a couple. Have a board of directors. Have somebody who's maybe really good at leadership. Maybe somebody who's really good in the financial sector. Maybe somebody who's has a really good family life that you can get some type of mentorship from. Have a board of directors. That way you can bounce ideas off of more people. Yeah, I was just I was just reading this book, uh, The Compound Effect, and and he was the author was talking about I don't remember who he was citing, but some highly successful person. 
but he was mentioning that this person has like 20 different coaches yeah. that they work with. Right. And, and I just, I, I think it's important to, to, to say that because I think there's a thought that like, Oh, well, if you need a coach, it's because you don't know what you're doing. Or if you need a coach, it's because you're, you know, you're at the lowest level and it's like, now actually the higher level you get, I think the more coaching actually that comes in or, or mentorship, you know, maybe not just coaching. Um, so, you know, I, I heard you and Carolyn discuss this a bit on, on her show um, about the difference between mentorship and coaching. And I was curious, you know, and I, I have a, a, a life coach that I work with for a couple of years now. And um, obviously we're, we're close to some extent. I don't know. I don't know the inside of her head very much, but she definitely knows the inside of mine. Um, but she is very careful to make sure that we we have this clear clearly defined relationship where where i think of her as this very objective person because she's concerned that if i become aware of her biases and her you know that Mm -hmm. then i'll start filtering her thoughts through my impression of her oh okay is that and you know maybe that's maybe that's her own her own thing or whatever but my question i guess is just assuming that a coach and maybe it's not always like that, but assuming that maybe with coaching, there's that more objective kind of relationship with a mentor. Is there more of a personal element to it? Or is that still not really necessarily a part of that? Does that make sense? It, it does. I would say the mentors that I've had, they have been very personal to me. Mm. They have listened to all of my, my thoughts and my, you know, a a lot of times, you know, I don't feel like I'm the right person for the job. And, you know, and I can express these types of things to them. So it's a very personal relationship. And the one thing I would mention on this is, especially if you have a mentor, I I would probably not put them directly within your chain of command. So not necessarily your direct boss, but maybe somebody on the outside who can't necessarily use those biases, not use them against you, but there's always a little bit of a bias in the back of your mind sometimes whenever you're trying to mentor somebody. But if they're completely outside of your chain of command, they'll be able to give you the best advice for you that isn't necessarily a conflict of interest for them. Right. So I would absolutely say that, yes, for the mentors I've had, they are very personable. Mm. Personal. Right, right. Yeah. No, that, 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 that makes sense. And that's kind of how I was thinking. I mean, because I guess, you know, obviously with a coach, oftentimes there's a uh, a financial relationship there's where was you're paying for that service. Mm-hmm. Is that the case with mentors typically, or is it, is it more behind <laughs> I've, the never, I've never actually paid a mentor. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm cheap. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all um, cursing you on the back end. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, um, I've, I've had mentors from all walks of my life. I had a really great mentor on the military side. I had a really great scientific mentor. I've had a really great business mentor. And no, none of them have ever expected for me to to actually pay them in any way. For them, they feel like, you know, they should almost be paying me to make sure that I'm on the right track. So it's in, but if you are a mentor, that's one thing that I think a lot of people need to understand is that you are giving up a lot of your time to be a mentor. You know, Mm. you're going to be busy. A lot of mentors are some, are people who are very well off in their own industries. And so if you want to be a good mentor, you have to take the time out of your day, sacrifice so that you can mentor others. And so I think that's why I've never thought about actually paying anybody because I, I realize that they're sacrificing, you know, for me, but at the same time, I'm also sacrificing for them as well. Mm, Fair enough. Fair enough. Reciprocal relationship. Um, so, you know, in, in the clients that you've been working with and, you know, I'm not trying to get you to expose personal details about anyone, but is there is there any client or story that stands out as is as, as one that just really kind of resonated with you or, or that, that still, you know, is a story that you tell? Um, I, I try not to tell stories about um, my mentees because a lot of them listen. <laughs> so, fair fair and, enough. And so, and they, I think they all know who they are. And so right. I try to make sure that's like, I don't divulge something for one person that's like, Hey, that's what so-and-so was trying to do. So. Right. Right. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair then. Um, I guess I'm just trying to understand, you know, it, it, I guess maybe a more generic way to ask that question then is just, 
what is the what is the process of 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 developing leadership within someone look like? I mean, is it something that someone can learn in a month? Does it take six months? Does it take? Is it a? I mean, I obviously used it earlier that you know obviously you continue learning throughout your life. Um, but yeah, kind of what is that? How does that process unfold for individuals? The way that I like to look at it is it has a pretty steep learning curve. And then once you get past that learning curve, then you start to level out a little bit. When I take somebody in to start mentoring them as far as leadership, the first thing that we always discuss is what kind of leader are you? And I know this is going to to me, it sounded really hokey at the very beginning, but taking a personality test, you know, mm. take the Myers-Briggs, take the Clifton Strengths. Those are really going to tell you a lot about you. And it's really surprising. It really opened my eyes to better understand who I am and how I'm being portrayed by mm -hmm. others in my different leadership styles. And it really took a 360 assessment. So that's one where you send out a questionnaire to your colleagues, also to your bosses, and then also to your direct reports. And they answer you know, questions about you and it's anonymous and it comes back. And I found out the most about my leadership actually from that assessment. Um, I found out that I'm not really good at delegating. Um, mm -hmm. My direct reports, you know, flat out said she never gives us work. She keeps it all herself. And I realized, oh, my God, that's what I do. And I realized how that was affecting people underneath me. And so taking these types of tests, these Clifton strengths, these Myers-Briggs, it'll tell you a lot about really who you are and how you work under stress. And it gives them an anchor for them to start thinking about, okay, here's the next steps that I need to do to develop my leadership. Mm. Can you elaborate more on, on the value of delegation? Because I definitely would have thought of it as as the leader, you get to take some stuff off of your plate and maybe open up, you know, time or, or whatever energy to, to think about other things. But how is, how is it advantageous for the, the, the people reporting to you? It's all about trust. Mm. So if you if you delegate down, that means that you are inherently trusting the person to get that done. And what I realized was that I was not trusting. I was the if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself type of girl. Like I said, I was out there trying to, you know, change the world by myself. And I didn't trust anybody to do the report, you know, to my standards during the time that was needed, you know, and, and all of that. And so I was like, I have to do it myself. And I realized later is like, wow, I'm like really hurting the people below me. They, they want to do something. They want to shine. They know that they can do it. And so by not delegating, I wasn't giving them the chance. They weren't growing. They knew that I didn't trust them. And so it really took for me to figure out that, yeah, that's what I'm doing and start to trust and make those small steps to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Mm. I was not delegating to you. Let's work on this report together and start to, for them to understand what your expectations are. Cause a lot of times we don't do that. We just give them a report and we don't say, these are my expectations. This is a timeline that I need it done in the, and you know, everything that goes with that. And so, you know, that's a failure on my part that I wasn't giving them that. And so they were failing because they didn't know. And mm -hmm. so once I stopped and said, okay, let's work on this together. This is how the report's done. This is the time frame that I needed in. Guess what? It came back right on time into my specifications. And so mm -hmm. I realized I can start delegating and you have to give up a little bit of your power to do that. You right. know, you have to give a little bit of yourself in order to delegate to others. And you have to be comfortable with that. And it's a comfortably uncomfortable type of situation, but that's how you really start to get to delegating to others. Right. So, you know, something that I, I assume has to be prevalent within leadership um, is, is dealing with fear. Hmm. I mean, your point, you know, the reason you don't delegate is because you're uh, to some extent afraid that it won't right. work out right. You know, maybe right. you would use the word afraid in that context, but, but ultimately it's similar to that. And so I'm really curious how, how you think about fear and especially not just because of your leadership expertise, but I mean, you're in a very accomplished person and specifically, you know, we're recording here in March and women's appreciation month. You're a very accomplished woman who has excelled in industries that are typically dominated by men. And, and I mean, you're at 21 or whatever old you were at Texas A&M trying to change the world. So fear doesn't seem to be something that 
that dominates you at all. So how do you, how do you process fear? How do you deal with that? I've always been a very calm person. Mm. And so anytime I'm in a type of situation, I'm also a real thinker. <laughs> so, so I start thinking about all of the different outcomes and, and instead of just reacting, I think about it first. Okay, maybe that's not a good idea. If there's a bear approaching me, I might be killed immediately. But that's the way that I approach fear. I, I analyze the situation as quickly as I can before making any type of reaction to that. And that's really benefited me um, in industry. You know, when we have a project that's failing, you know, we can freak out um, or we can really think about it, think about how do I fix this and, and sort of really mentally stop yourself and kind of go through all the motions to figure out how to get through that. Now, mm. on a real basis, like whenever I was in Iraq and Afghanistan and people were shooting at me mm. and shooting at my helicopter and things like that. Yeah, there's a different type of fear there. But that fear, you have to trust that no matter where you are, that you are going to get through it. And mm. I've had, you know, my convoy shot at and things like that. And the way that I got through fear in those situations was by being very prepared um, we have immediate action drills that we do whenever anything happens. And so I always made sure that I was practicing those immediate action drills. If this happens, this happens. If this goes wrong, this is what I do. And so I would practice and practice and practice. And so whenever a convoy would get hit and we're getting shot at, I was able to say, these are the things that we need to do. And so you're able to keep that level head, you mm -hmm. know, while bullets are literally flying over your head so that you can get through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's a, a point that I've come to in in some recent conversations. Um, like I talked to one guy who found himself on the precipice of suicide and, and went out mm -hmm. to the woods to to do that, and then had this kind of moment of clarity, and then found himself asking a lot of questions. Um, I talked to a lady whose college age daughter was on a trip in Peru and a boulder and a canoe trip and a boulder falls off the side of the mountain and hits her daughter in the head and doesn't kill her, but hospitalize her. And so then this mom from you know, somewhere in, in the Southern United States is on a plane to South America. And on that plane, I mean, she's terrified, but she realizes that her daughter needs her to not be this right. box of fear. And so she starts asking herself questions and and then I was talking to another lady who's a, a paranormal investigator, so not related to <laughs> those oh, wow. serious things. But I asked her, you know, when you're in a prison or something, like some old abandoned prison and you hear a, a spooky noise, like, is that terrifying? And, and she said, you know, sure, it's startling, but, but ultimately we run towards that because we're curious what's causing it. And so it's this constant theme of that the curiosity seems to be kind of this antidote or bulwark to fear do you find that to be true for yourself at all? Like, do you, do you find yourself curious in the work that you're doing now or does that not make translate really? No, it does. Uh, I like the idea of running towards the fear. Yeah. Uh, it is because if we freeze up, you know, that doesn't do anything whatsoever. And so you have to mentally like click the mind over and say, start solving it. Mm. You know, no matter if it's a, in a corporate setting or if you're like literally getting shot at, start the, the head, start thinking, what do I need to do? And if it means running towards whatever that fear is, that's the best thing to do. Um, mm. I mean, unless it's a bear, then run the other way. You know, so, <laughs> so there still is that analogy. Uh, right. but, but start, but you have to think and you have to mentally stop your brain from freaking out. Mm. Awesome. So, you know, we talked earlier, you're working with a lot of young entrepreneurs and just, you know, all sorts of people. What does that process look like if, if someone's interested in contacting you? How do they go about that? And then what is it? How does the, it play out from there? The, the best way to reach me, uh, you can go to my website, which is jendonahue.com. It's Jen with two N's. Uh, so you can go to the website there. Uh, there's a way that you can get in contact with me. I'm also on LinkedIn and on Instagram and Twitter, uh, all under Jen Donahue. So for instance, Twitter is Jen Donahue. Uh, Instagram is I am Jen Donahue. Uh, LinkedIn is Jen Donahue. So you're starting to see a pattern here. So hopefully, right. hopefully people will be able to find me that way. So yes. Jen with two N's. Cool. Um, but yeah, so I mean, again, if you if you don't mind, what does yeah. that look like after they've after they've gotten in contact with you? Are you are you meeting with them one on one? Is it group settings? Like how does that go? Oh, uh, especially with COVID right now, it's all on one on one settings mm. and. 
really what I want to do is I want to try to get to know the person first because there's probably an instance where maybe this isn't the right fit. But mm-hmm. if I realize it's not the right fit, I know several people It's like, you know, you really should talk to so-and-so, you know, because not everybody is, is, is a good fit. And that's part of it. It's building the trust between you and the other person and having a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. So if I don't know that, if I think that maybe it's not the right connection between us, I will absolutely put you in contact with somebody who I think would really fit your personality and the needs that you have. Awesome. Well, Jen, I, I have to say, I'm incredibly humbled for you to to come on the show this evening. Uh, you're a, a remarkably inspirational person. All of the things that you've accomplished have, are, are amazing. And, and then you're an incredibly kind and generous person. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Was there anything else that we didn't speak to that you wanted to, to talk about at all? No, th- this has been great. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been a fantastic interview and really hope for all the best for you.
folks well that's it for the show thank you so much again to jen donahue for stopping by of course thank you to misha for the music and last but not least thank you listener for listening to the show today i'd also like to invite you to check out my other podcast pick up your sticks which is co-hosted by me and brett lindley pick up your sticks is a podcast about video games where we talk about why gaming matters we explore a variety of titles and also feature interviews with pro gamers streamers developers and everyone in between you can find Pick Up Your Sticks anywhere podcasts are found, so check it out today. Again, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Stay up.